Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the point is made that all mankind is sinful. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, The Power of Sin. chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We're going to read this together, and then we're going to pray. Beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you will please bow with me, let's ask for God's help as we study. Oh God in heaven, Father, we just pause here right now, lower ourselves and and recognize If you do not give help, then this will be a waste of time. God, if you do not bless, if you do not send your spirit and shine light on the word and give us understanding, we will get nothing, understand nothing, and leave here exactly as we came, except maybe with even harder hearts than when we walked in. We're begging you, God. Do what only you can do. Melt the stubbornness, the resistance. Melt, Lord, our opposition to you. Father, break us. Humble us, Lord, so that we we love you. We see your worth, your greatness, your majesty, and that you alone are worthy of all worship, all love, all adoration for all the cosmos to bow to you, O God. Please, God, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, work in our hearts, till the soil, oh God, we pray so that, Lord, we will benefit from this time. We'll receive your word rightly. Father, for me to preach and to be truthful and helpful in any way, I'm going to need a thousand different kinds of help and grace, so please provide that. Help me not to get in the way. Help me not to say wrong, untruthful things or hurtful things, offensive things. Father, help me to to speak, preach in a way that's right, and all of us, oh God, to receive your word rightly. So please, God, for your glory, for your namesake, protect this time and work the miracles, Lord, that you do through the word. Please bless us. We ask this through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this section uh, that we come to this morning marks the conclusion of the first step of this great argument 
that runs through this letter. Now, going slowly like we are, being thorough, uh, trying to drink up every drop of truth that we can has tremendous benefit. I do believe that this is the primary way God intends us to study analyzing sentences and such. There is a drawback if we're not careful, and that can be that we lose sight of the big picture because there is a big argument that's working through the book here. So let me, let me take just a second here and just kind of remind you uh, of what the big picture argument is because today finishes the first step of that big picture argument. If you'll jump back to, chap jump back to chapter one for a second here. We said from the beginning that verses 16 and 17 lay out the central idea, the premise for everything that we'll see in this whole book. And so here is the premise. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. We might say that's the very first thing that this book is going to show. The power of God in saving souls. So the power of God for salvation, that's the second thing, to everyone who believes, whether they be Jew or Greek, richer, poor, slave, or free, whatever they are, that'd be a third thing. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the fourth. And through faith, that's the fifth. By the time we're done, those five major truths will have been proven in an argument kind of style. If you don't believe them right now, if you follow through the logic of the scripture and, and track with us and have an honest heart, you will, be, you will come to believe these five things as we study through them. But if you take those first two things that we've just noticed there, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, before you can ever see the point of that, before you will ever come to God to be saved, you first have to see that you need this. You first have to comprehend that this is actually something that you need. And that's why this book starts off in the way that it does. It starts off with the first three chapters driving home hard the sinfulness that we have inside of our hearts. How we have broken the law of God, how we have hearts that resist God. Why does this just keep hammering, hammering, hammering? Sometimes people read through these first sections or maybe sit in a church where there are six months of preaching through the first three chapters of this book and go, preacher, we get it, shut up about sin. Can we move on now? We need to stay. We have a hair trigger a hair trigger that always wants to justify ourselves, that always wants to bring God's standard down lower and myself up higher. We need God's word to show us so that we just fall on the floor in tears going, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we're just not gonna do that with one verse. We're just not gonna do that unless God just pounds and pounds and pounds on us, showing us our sin. And so that's why all of chapter one and all of chapter two have been showing the sinfulness of man, the Gentile and the Jew, the guy who grew up in church, as well as the gang member. All of us are in sin before God. And this last section that we're in, verses nine through 20 here, finish up this section. So that if you're paying attention and honest, by the time you're done with these verses here, 
you will see your need of salvation. So that's, that's why. That's why the first step of the argument is this. In your evangelism, as you try to engage with the world and show, uh, show people how to receive eternal life, the hardest and first step is always going to be convincing people that they need this thing, that their sin makes them guilty before God. You don't care until you see your need. You don't want Christ until you see I'm desperate without him. So this passage has been pounding this home. And so verses 9 through 20 will finish up this, this part. And he does it in big fashion. It's going to take us a little bit of time to work through this. Right now in, in my mind, I've got three messages planned, but I'm not even sure if that's enough. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll work our way through these kinds of things here. I, I see four main truths that come out of this. So these will not be four truths we study through today, but as we work through the whole passage, four main things that are here. Number one, all mankind is in sin. Number two, all of man is sinful. Number three, therefore no man is justified by his own merit or goodness. And then the fourth truth the purpose of the law of God is to expose sin, not to save. If you didn't get all that and you want to grab those after the message, that would be just fine. Today, the plan is, I want to kind of look at the overview of it all. So we're not really going to work through any of those points particularly today. What I want to do is just kind of look at this overarching doctrine that, that is applied and shown in all of these things here. And I'm calling the overview, man in sin mostly because that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called it. Man in sin, this doctrine of us and our attachment to sin and sin in us. And to do that, I'm going to bring out four main things. But let's start by looking at the language once again here. If you look at verse 9 again, he starts by asking this question. Um, are, we, are we better than they? I think the the, I think the we that he refers to there are the Jews. So he's sort of asking the question after analyzing the sinfulness of Gentiles and then the sinfulness of Jews, which is the sinfulness of the nations who were without God for a long time. And then the sinfulness of the descendants of Abraham looking at all the nations of the earth. Are we better than they? And he answers it by saying, not at all. And then watch what he says in the next statement. He says, we have already, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The part where he says there, we already said this, basically what happens here in verses 9 through 20 is he's kind of giving the exclamation point to what he's already taught in chapters 1 and 2. Everything that he concludes here about man in sin all comes from Old Testament passages. If you notice in your Bibles, verses 10 through 18, if in your Bibles it's like capitalized or indented, what that is showing you is that these are all quotes from the Old Testament. What Paul does here is kind of at the end, after having preached for some time, he shows, all right, do you think I'm making this up? I want to show you that this is biblical, that this has been there all along. He quotes from seven places in the Old Testament. If you want to jot them down, there's Psalm 14, Psalm 53, 
Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 140, Psalm 36, and Isaiah 59. But do you, do you catch this ab- ab- about what the point that he's making here? Everything that he has preached in this section on sin, friends, it was all there in the Old Testament. Like what God has done in the, new, in the new covenant and in bringing the gospel, God brings us further in our understanding, but it's all there shadowed and some of it very clearly, even in the Old Testament. In fact, even in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you will see the fall of man, the depravity of man, man in sin, sin leads to death and our need for salvation. That's all there in the first book of the Bible. That's some of the significance whenever we, we walked through that uh, genealogy and we saw, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died as we're working through those things. We're seeing the effect of sin infiltrating mankind there. Friends, even in the first book of the Bible, these truths on the depravity of man were there even in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of things had been misunderstood. Jesus' preaching and teaching did a lot of correcting of misunderstanding of the Old Testament. A lot of what is happening here in the book of Romans is correction of ways that the people in his day had misunderstood the Bible. But I do want this point to be, to be seen here. What he says here is, is not, really nothing more than what was revealed even in the Old Testament. But in kind of a way of preaching this doctrine and then saying, let me show it to you. And he works through a section here. Now, whenever you look at verses 10 through 18, there's some structure, as there usually is. (laughs) The Bible is not just haphazard. There's usually, whenever you really get into it, there's poetic structures and themes and things running through there. If you look at the verses, in verses 10 through 12 there, there is this overview of man in sin, but it emphasizes the fact of all are in sin. Do you see the the use of the word all and the none and not even one kind of language there? We're going to come back to that. Verses 13 to 17, look at the genius of this. He's going to walk you from your head to your feet, inward and outward, and show that sin has touched every single part of us. And then in verse 18, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, the great summarization is made there. The chief way that we resist God, the chief way that we live in sin is we oppose God by refusing to give him the worship, the love, the obedience, the fear that God is worthy of. And then in verses 19 and 20, which we'll get into at some point there, kind of give a summarization on how all of this connects with the law. So there's big meat coming up. This is big doctrine, big theology. This is, this is some of the big picture kind of stuff. Today, the goal is to just work through the overview and to just think through what God is showing here with the sinfulness of man. So let me bring up four things. So if you are taking notes, here will be, here will be what we look at today. Here is the first one. Mankind is not righteous. In verses 10 through 12, you see this language. None is righteous, not even one. None is good, not even one. Now, if this is your first time hearing this, I expect you to be a bit surprised. Because we live uh, in a kind of culture where we're constantly hearing all this talk of, he's such a good guy, she has such a good heart. 
Well, he may do a lot of bad things, but he's got a heart of gold. We, we just hear this language all the time and it just, gets, it just gets beat in, beat in, beat in so much that it becomes a worldview. And the way that you look at the world of believing that mankind is intrinsically good. And the Bible is challenging that. God from heaven speaks and says, you ain't good. You are not righteous. And let me just tell you, this is not a fluke of a verse. This is not just like one little part and like we can go like, well, what he really means is, no, this is all through the Bible. This is Genesis. This is, this is Jesus and his preaching and teaching. Do you remember that time when he met with the rich young ruler? And, and one of the things that Jesus told the rich young ruler, even before the conversation really got going, no one is good but God alone. And then that young man still proceeded to claim to be good and not need salvation. God is telling us here, mankind is unrighteous and not good. Now, it'll be, it'll be helpful to know, though, that the Bible does speak of this in two different kinds of ways. The word good, righteous, even words like faithful and holy. It will speak of it in two different ways. The first way is according to its truest definition. So, so for instance, uh, jump to Psalm 14 for a moment. Psalm 14 is actually where some of this comes from uh, in, in this passage. Psalm 14, find verse one. I'm going to go kind of quick here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven. That, that's a pivotal phrase there, by the way. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That phrase there, God looks down from heaven. That's, that's one of the key phrases here. According to God's definition of what is good, of what is right, of what is truly righteous. None of us measure up. None of us measure up to that standard. By the way, let's, let's add this in. God's standard is not unreasonable. Sometimes when people hear about God's standard being complete righteousness, they then sort of brush it off with this kind of, well, that's just ridiculous. God's standard is not absurd. His standard is not unreasonable. His standard is not, is, is not ridiculous. Listen to me. He is holy. He created you to be holy. He created this world to be holy. And that kingdom of God to come, there will not be even one unrighteous toe step on that glorious green grass. Only what is truly righteous will be allowed there. His standards are not ridiculous. And in the end, even if he didn't like it, what are you going to do about it? You're not going to challenge him and get him to change his mind. Whenever you stand before God on the day of judgment, you are getting judged according to his standards and not the ones you make up. Mankind is constantly taking what the Bible says about God's standard and always wanting to reduce it down. Well, it's not really sin because always trying to picture ourselves as higher than we are. But when you stand before God, you will not be judged based on Oprah's standard of the law. You will be judged based on God's. You will not be based on the cool kids table and what they think is right and wrong. You will be judged based on God's. 
And according to God's standard, we do not measure up. We are not righteous. We are not good. Now, maybe just as kind of an aside, a little bit of a parenthesis here. We do need to keep in mind that sometimes the Bible will use the word good, righteous, faithful, or holy in a kind of comparative sense. Uh, in, in a sense of humanly speaking, from an earthly kind of perspective. And I just think that's kind of helpful to know. If you want a place where that's used, Romans 15, 14, Paul says to the very people that he just says, you're not good here. Later on, he'll say, I know you all are full of goodness. Wait a second, Paul, which is it? Are we not good or are we good? Well, according to legal standards, the way that we'll we, be, we will be judged according to the law of God, we do not measure up and you need salvation. But once we are right with God, once we are in Christ, several folks from Scripture like Noah and Job were called righteous. Why? Because they had been made right with God by faith and then they began to live in a way that was in keeping with their identity. I think that's kind of helpful to know. Husbands, you can say to your wife, you're a good wife. Sometimes seminary students and those who kind of get in this sort of block, they think you can only say you're depraved, okay? That doesn't go well on your anniversary, okay? Like you need to know there is a, a different way of, of, of seeing these kinds of things. But we do have to use some interpretation. We have to use some wisdom whenever we come to some of these places. So when God says no one is righteous and no one is good, this means legally speaking, and you need forgiveness of your sins. Here's the second thing I want to bring up. We see from the text that man is under sin. In verse 9, notice that language that he uses there. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. What is meant by this language that we're all under sin? We, we could say it like this. All of mankind is under the power and the influence of sin. In the deepest recesses of who we are, there is corruption. Who you are at the core of you, that, that's your truest self. Your true, your true you is not just, it's not just the body that you see. Okay? C.S. Lewis said, uh, you are not a body. You are a soul that has a body. Your truest you is who you are in the, in the inner man, in the depths. And God gave us a tent to cover up the truest self of who you are. And what the Bible shows is that who we are in the depths of us, our nature has been corrupted. Our, our nature was, was, has fallen from that high and glorious place that God created Adam and Eve and what we were meant to be. We have been twisted off of that original design. The beautiful painting has now had, had mud smeared across it. There, there has now been a, a tornado come through the beautiful house and, and now it is in disarray. The point being, there was once something glorious and now it has been marred. It wasn't completely removed and destroyed. You are still made in the image of God. There are still parts of us that show the character of God, but it's been marred from its original place. And even down to the core of who you are, our nature, our nature has been distorted. Turn to a couple of verses, uh, chapter six, if you will, please. 
couple verses I find helpful as we think through this kind of thing here. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Look what is said there. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, he's speaking to the Christian there, If you're still resisting God, then you are still in that place. But for the Christian, you were slaves of sin. Here's what happened instead. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Those verses are talking about the fact that at our deepest level, we are allegiant to someone. We're in a state of conflict in this life, both believer and unbeliever, by the way in a state of conflict within us that there are desires to do right, desires to do good. Even the unbeliever doesn't want to do only evil all of the time. Before you came to faith in Christ, you were not as bad as we could have been. There's this internal kind of conflict that is there of the desires to please God versus the desire to gratify my fleshly desires. And even a mature Christian does not obey God all the time, but at your core, We can say, you are submissive to someone. You give your allegiance, you bow the knee of your life to someone. It is either to to yourself or to sin, however you word it, or ultimately to God. And, And being submissive to sin, it means this. You feel fleshly desires. We all do. It's part of what is happening in this body that we have right here. These sinful bodies, you have cravings, lust, greed. We covet. What what do all those words have in common? They're all desires. At its root, every sin begins with some unrighteous desire, some fleshly kind of, of craving that we have. And while we're in this flesh, We're going to have those unrighteous kinds of desires, but you do not have to give in to those desires. But where we are in our part where we are separated from Christ, okay, so where where we are where we are not in this state of redemption, we're in a mode of existence where we are committed to gratifying the fleshly desires that I feel. Does that make sense? Where we are apart from Christ is that our chief desire is not to submit to God the goal of my life. The thing to which I am committed is I am committed to gratifying my greatest, my chief desires. Apart from Christ, our greatest fleshly desires become our gods. They become precious to us. We make the goal of our lives to serve them and everybody's got your own distinct ones that are the greatest temptation to to you. For some, it is greed for money. For others, it is sex. For others, it is is just self-exaltation. Everybody's got your own distinct ones that become gods apart from Christ. In Philippians 3, there's that um, description of those whose God is their belly. And I don't think that his point there is just to highlight food and gluttony specifically, but really just to talk about appetites in general, whatever that appetite would be. Apart from Christ, we make as the the great endeavor of our lives 
to gratify our chief desires. But what it means to turn to Christ, what, what, what it is to come to this place of redemption is, is that God rescues us from our sinful nature. Not that we become perfect, but we do make progress in this world. But at our core, at our core, we turn from our desire to make ourselves happy by the indulgence of fleshly desires to faith means I come to believe my great good, my everlasting happiness is somewhere else. It doesn't come here, it comes in God. And over time, that desire to please God grows. My fleshly desires diminish more and more, never all the way leaving in this world, but lessening because we're fighting them and the desire to honor God increasing, our ability to exercise self-control increasing. And this is how you get what the Bible calls sanctification, that process of growing in Christ. And by the way, let me make this part clear so we understand this whole nature thing. Sinful desires live inside of us. Self-control is when we learn how to stop those desires. It's when we learn how to say no to ourselves. So you may have a desire, maybe even a craving. I want to say that sentence that just came to my head and boy, it would really dig. It would really win that argument. Self-control is biting your tongue and learning not to say it. Self-control in every kind of area is, is suppressing these wicked desires. We'll, we'll talk about that more in the book of Romans, but, but I do want us to consider this. Even if a Christian developed perfect self-control, meaning the desires were still there, but let's say a man grew to a point, this isn't possible, but let's just theoretically say, grew to a point that he was always able to stop every action and hold back every word that came. That, that wanted to come out, that man would still be unfit for the kingdom of God. That man is still not righteous by his own doing. God is not going to allow a single ounce of uncleanness into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot stand before God, the holy God, and be right with him, even if you gained the strength to hold back all of the evil inside of you. Because you and I are still infected with sin. Friends, even when you and I are asleep and we are not engaging in sinful actions, it's still at the core of us, the rebellion of sin is still alive inside of us. At its root, sin is rebellion to God, and it is resistance to authority. And it is saying to God, you don't get to rule over me. All of this is at work inside of us. This is part of what it means to be under sin. And, and notice that sin in, is often spoken of, and I'm, I'm using this term singularly, meaning I'm not saying we're under sins, plural, but rather we're under sin, singular. There's a difference there. The Bible will often talk about the fact that we commit sins, meaning the individual acts that come out. But what the Bible spends even more time talking about is sin singular, 
And that's referring to sin as the power, as that diseased nature as a whole that is in opposition to God. And it is a power at work in our hearts. This language of being under sin is how we might speak of a a master, a ruler, a Lord, someone whose authority we were under. It's speaking of sin as if it were this, this power above us. You know, when we say it like that, if we're not careful, it could almost sound like we're saying that we're victims in the matter. You know, sin is at work in us, but not me, really me. I'm, I'm innocent in these things, but that's not the reality at all. You know, it's, it's very similar to the way that sometimes we'll talk about someone under the, under the power of alcohol. That doesn't absolve the one doing the drinking. It is your choice. So why do we use that kind of language? And by the way, I'm not saying stop using that kind of language because the Bible uses that kind of language. But, it, but if we are not innocent in this, then why does the Bible speak like this? Well, it's, it's kind of similar to uh, Genesis 4 whenever God is speaking to Cain. L- listen to the words that God spoke to Cain before he went and murdered his brother when it was still just an unrighteous desire in his heart. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God speaks of sin like it's a, like a lion, lying in wait, ready to pounce. And again, if we're not careful, we could read that kind of thing and we could just think of, you know, we're, we're innocent in this kind of thing. The, the lion of sin is just waiting to attack us. And I didn't want it to happen. And all of these, no, no, no. The irony in it all is that we are the choosers of our wicked deeds. But the point of scripture speaking this way is to help us understand the devastating, influential, sticking power of sin. Sin is like a monster. When sin is left unrestrained and unchecked, it becomes a monster in your life. Ask the porn addict who started small and now this sin has overtaken his life and he feels like he can't stop. Ask the man who has let his anger go unrestrained for a couple of decades and now he he feels like he has no control, like he just becomes a different person at moments. Sin does have a way that it's like it has a, a life of its own. But that doesn't absolve us of guilt. It doesn't, it doesn't make us innocent in it. The, it's, this is the power of sin. It's similar to how scripture speaks of sin as a cruel taskmaster, one who rules over us and we have become a slave of sin. Language like that is gonna be used as we continue to go uh, go through the book of Romans here. But again, we are not innocent in the matter. We have bowed the knee. We have submitted to that slave master there. And you know, you hear a lot of, modern language that talks about sin constantly in terms that uh, absolve guilt of people. 
We used to laugh at some of those shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous that used to talk about all these Hollywood celebrities who fell victim to addiction. And we would laugh and say, well, that's a pretty happy way to talk about, or pretty innocent sounding way to talk about engaging in these kinds of things. But now the culture has picked up on this kind of talk of being a victim of these kinds of things. But that's not the reality. We're not innocent victims. In fact, you'll never see the Bible talk about addiction. Instead, it talks about slavery, that we become bound to these things by which we engage in. You'll see the Bible talk about as the dog returns to his own vomit. So the man returns to his sin. We are co-conspirators. We are complicit. It would be similar to growing up, you may have had one of those friends that your mama didn't want you hanging out with. And your mama knew that this was a bad influence on you. The naive young man gets into the car with the, with the troublemaker. And he does it because he wants to fit in with the cool kids club. He wants, wants all of this. And he knows that there may be some challenges. But he goes and he rides around. And throughout the night, again and again, these moments come up where he's pressured to do things that he would not normally do. He's persuaded. He's talked into engaging in things that he wouldn't normally do. And yes, that influence did make him go further than he wanted to. But listen, that doesn't make him innocent in these things. Mama may try to blame the bad influence, but mama's boy participated. He was complicit. Sin's power is persuasion. Sin's power is pressure. It is the case that it takes us further than we ever intended to go. And even before you engage in certain things, you may think, well, I'm only going to let myself go to, to here and then I'm going to stop. And you always go further. But that doesn't make us innocent. The power of sin is the power of temptation, pressure, persuasion, pushing us to these things. This is what it means that we are under sin. It means that apart from Christ, we're held, we're attached. Sin is in us. Sin rules us. It's a disease inside of us. It is a spirit of rebellion that lives within us, a mindset, a way of thinking that lives inside of us. Who will set us free from these things is a question that Romans will ask. And the answer is Christ Christian coming to faith in Christ right now means that God begins a process of freeing us with the hope that one day at the resurrection we'll be all the way redeemed and that's happy thoughts and we're going to get to all those happy thoughts. But first, the argument here is about who we are apart from Christ and he's not done. Here's the third thing. Your fundamental problem is internal and not external. Friend, your biggest problem is yourself. Your biggest problem is not environmental factors. Your great problem is internal. It's a very common worldview in our culture. In fact, I would say it is the dominant worldview of our culture now. The belief that man is intrinsically good, but it's the external factors that are the problem. And if we could just get rid of these external factors, then man would reach his pinnacle. Here's an example, friends. This is real world stuff. What does an armed robber need? If a man busted through those back doors right there with intent to harm us, 
there are those who communicate because they believe that it is wrong to show any aggression towards that individual because it is not his fault. What he really needs is a good hug. What he really needs is to sit down and talk through his feelings. There are those who actually believe that if you could just get with a gang member, sit him down and get him to express his hurts and his feelings, that the desire for the bad would just dissolve away, just counsel it away. I'm not making that up. That's not exaggerating. That is real world stuff. And if that sounds insane to you, good job recognizing reality. It is insane. But it comes from a belief. It comes from a presupposition. It comes from a starting point that then has logical conclusions. The belief that man is intrinsically good, but it's all the external things that corrupt him. And along those lines, friends, there are millions and millions who don't believe it quite to that extreme, but who still see this See, see the world in these kinds of ways, believing that fixing external things will fix man. There are politicians who operate with this belief. It's the, entire, it's the entire worldview from which they speak their platform, who teach that if we could just create this society without poverty, racism, bullying, etc., then we would reach the pinnacles. And so that we don't misunderstand this. Now listen, as Christians, yeah, we want to fix every external problem. We do. We want to bring this world into submission under the rule of God so that all things please him. And I kind of just want to live and raise my kids in a place that is a better society. We want those things, but we are under no delusion that this will fix man. Man's redemption is not in politics. Man's redemption does not come in fixing what is external. Your greatest problem is you. It's you. It's inside you. Your sin, you are never in your life going to face a temptation that is not like your fault. It comes from desires that are inside of us. It's one of the things we see in the account of the flood in Noah's day. What happens whenever that crew gets off the boat? They corrupt the world again. So even if you remove the overtly evil people, and you replace it with mostly decent religious people, still evil reproduces. Because where humans congregate, there there will be sin. Our problem, friends, is our own sin. Let me show you another interesting way that the Bible teaches this. I want to prove the point to you that to be a good parent, you need to be a good theologian. Proverbs 22, 15. Listen, you can, you can turn there if you like. I'm just going to read it here. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. That's interesting. By the way, don't freak out about the Bible talking about the rod there. This isn't the Bible advocating a bat, okay? This is like a wooden spoon. This is the Bible advocating spanking your children. But look at the reason why. Because evil is inside of them. In other words, the problem is not external, the problem is internal. And internally, they need to be taught self-control. They need to be taught to say no to their desires. Now, now, don't misunderstand this. When children live in horrible external conditions, we know how that turns out. 
But we cannot misunderstand this to think that the conditions make the child evil. Now listen, friends, the evil was in there. For a child to grow to learn to behave, there has to be training and hard work to get there. And when they are trained unto evil, then it allows this to just even multiply and perpetuate. But what God shows is the evil began inside of them. And this whole uh, modern idea that is opposed to uh, correcting and spanking children and is growing in popularity, do you see it comes from that basic belief that the children are innocent, but they're not. Parents, if your children were taken one day old by angels to an island somewhere, separated from you and separated from the rest of all those evil people, and raised by angels. Those angels would do a better job than me. Uh, those kids would turn out better behaved. But those children would still sin. And those children would still need redemption in Christ because our great problem is the nature inside of us. We use a lot of unbiblical language sometimes whenever we excuse our sin. Sometimes we justify our grumpiness by saying things like, well, I didn't sleep well last night. And parents, that fit that your child throws in Walmart, it's not just that they didn't get their nap. There's evil inside of them. What we have are sometimes circumstances that bring us past our point of normal self-control. There are sometimes things that reduce our self-control. If I can confess some of my sin to you, there are certain allergy medicines that when I take them, I end up grumpy and sometimes saying hurtful things to my family. I hate that. But let's be very clear. The medicine didn't make me sin. The sin is in me. What changed are the self-control levels that I normally have and they reduce. This is why the Bible says, don't be an idiot and drink too much. Because whenever you pass that line, you're going to be stupid because we lower self-control. We, we, we have enough trouble obeying God sober. We don't need to be adding anything else that diminishes self-control in these things. None of this though, the problem is not external. The problem is internal. It is the inward man. And by the way, let me, um, let me just kind of add this in uh, close to the end here of this part. I just said a lot of things. How do we know if they're true? Let me imitate Paul a little bit here. Um, he preaches for two chapters and then gives quotes from scripture and things. Let me give a similar thing. If what I have preached you're not convinced is true. Let me give you some passages for you to go to. I had intended to turn there if we had more time, but I'm trying to roll through here. Genesis 6, 5, in which God says that he looked at the sons of men and saw that every thought of their hearts is only evil continually, even the intentions of our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, verses 20 to 23, in which Jesus explains that out of the heart come the evil things. We are not corrupted externally. Our corruption is internal and our sins come out from that which is in the bottom. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, talk about that all of us were by nature children of wrath. And even speaking to Christians, there was a time where the definition of our life was we lived to indulge the lust of the flesh. This defined us. Well, here at the end here, 
Let me bring some conclusions. Fourth part. Let me give three kind of conclusions. I had a list of many, many more. Not enough time to say them all. I boiled it down to just three. Number one, your most fundamental problem is your sin. Your greatest need is for your sin to be atoned for and for you to be righteous before God. The world is constantly obsessing over external needs. The world is constantly telling our youth, you need a great education so you can get a great job because you need money. You need a car, you need a place to live. I need a spouse, I need kids. I need more money. I need insurance, I need better insurance. I need another spouse because the last one didn't make me happy. I need to be happy. I need, I need, I need, and I need more money. None of those are your most fundamental need. Your most fundamental need is for your sin to be atoned for because you are not just a body, you are a soul who will live forever and your sin makes you guilty and you are going to stand before the living God and you will be sent somewhere. You need to be righteous with this God. That's your greatest need. Your money will burn. Your soul is going somewhere for eternity. Your fundamental need is getting your sin problem fixed. Now, the exciting part about where we're going in this book is we're going to be shown how God has brought that. What has God done to alleviate this need? But you don't care until you first see that you have the need. (coughs) Secondly, Christian, follower of Christ, knowing these things, knowing them Deeply. I don't just mean surface level. I mean that, that decades-long pursuit of going deeper and deeper in understanding. Knowing the depths of the gospel and understanding our sin is a part of that. Knowing deeply the gospel is medicine that brings healing in literally every dimension of your life. You, you who are in Christ... You who have turned from your sins, you have trusted in him and you are confident that you have eternal life. Listen to me. First of all, the greatest medicine has already been applied. Legally before God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have eternal life. So legally, there has been the greatest fix. But God wants that even right now, change will come in our lives. Healing and redemption will be occurring even right now. And what I want to tell you is the medicine for that is still the gospel. Going deep in comprehending the gospel is how God will bring change in your life. Just just consider this. Knowing the depths of your sin to where you feel it deeply. My uncleanness, my unworth before God, and then the heights of God's grace. Knowing those things deeply will make you into a different kind of person. Learning what we have, just how dark my heart has been and still is, knowing the weight of my guilt, knowing, as we're going to see later, your sin made you unable to come to God. You didn't go running to Jesus. God had to come to you and draw you, rescue you, seeing the heights of God's grace. In grace, I can't fathom. God came to me and saved me, not because of any goodness in me, but because of his grace, he saved me. What should that do to my heart? 
What, what kind of change in my thinking will that bring? Christian, we should be the most humble, joyful, loving, hope-filled people on the planet. Knowing these things is the medicine for what ails us. Knowing this should, we're going to use the word should, it ought to produce change even now. From pride to humility, from coldness to joy, from despair to hope. And the more that we grow in knowing these things, the more we will be transformed. So that's why every Christian is full of joy, really humble, and has lots of hope, right? It's not how it works. So if that's the case, then why is there this tension? Well, first of all, on day one of being saved, you don't, we don't start off like knowing everything deeply. There is a decades-long pursuit of growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the heights of the gospel, growing and comprehending my sin. And listen to me, even after today, even if you've learned a lot about sin, you're not done. You're not done. You got, a, you got another 50 years of studying your sin to keep going deeper. But the more that we do it, and the more that we come to feel it, to internalize those things, the more transformation in our lives will come. A, a prideful Christian, there's been a disconnect. A grouchy Christian, there's been a disconnect. Some things have been learned in the head, but have not been internalized to bring that change, to produce humility, love, joy and hope. But this is how God wants to bring this chief transformation of character. You need the word of God and the gospel at the center. You meditating day after day after day is how this change will come. Take the medicine as prescribed. God prescribes daily, daily meditation on the gospel. This is what God wants to produce. And then lastly, the number one reason why people reject the gospel, refuse to turn to Christ to be saved, even if they in general agree with Christianity, agree that there was a Jesus and that he ought to be obeyed in some way, but refuse to turn to him to be saved. The number one reason why this is refused is because of not comprehending sin. It's not comprehending how awful sin is and how it has made us guilty before him. And so let me say a word to you today. I don't know your hearts, but if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Christ to be saved, you know that you've never come to him like this, like the Bible tells you to, to turn to him and cry out to him, God, forgive me of my sins, save me. I need to be right with you. If you've never done this, I need you to see that you're desperate. You're desperate and you've just not known it yet. You have nothing. You're going to stand before God and you have nothing. Your money will burn. Your beauty will fade. Your trophies will be forgotten. You come before God and you have nothing. What you need is the righteousness of Christ. What you need is to be found in him, attached to Christ. If you reject that, you have nothing because your sin condemns you. Look to Christ. Call out to him in prayer. 
And if you want some help in doing that, you want to talk to somebody, find me before you leave here. But let me close this in a word of prayer and we'll dismiss. Please bow with me. Oh God in heaven, Father, in seeing what we have seen, we are astounded that you would show love to us. God, we see we have not one thing that makes you owe us any grace. You've come only in mercy and we thank you for this. God, I pray for us believers in the room that we will continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ and that in growing in that knowledge, Lord, we'll be transformed. But I also pray, God, for anyone in this room that has not yet been converted, not yet looked to Christ in faith, please show them their need. Put a hunger, a desire in them. Make them like Lydia, where you stir their heart to want you, O God. Please bring this grace. Please protect us and bless us as we leave. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, The Power of Sin. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.